Excellent lesson and thank you. Um, this question relates specifically to verse 19. Knowing the uh, complete redemptive plan of God to include the Gentiles, I'm kind of uh, curious as to the wording. What would give anyone the indication that uh, them being added to the body would be considered a replacement or putting themselves in the place of someone else who had been taken out? It just seems like it'd be clear that whether someone else was included or rejected would have no bearing on where they, where they were positioned within that same body. Well, Scholar, I think you have to consider the fact that you're looking at this from 2,000 years perspective. This was written in 57, 25 years after the cross. The Jews were not obeying the gospel. In fact, they were hardened, and uh, there weren't very many, if any, obeying the gospel. Uh, by this time and in the next few years after this. And so the Gentile might reach the same self-righteous decision that the Jew himself had reached, that he had some special uh, connection with God that gave him some sort of special benefits, that God was um, partial now to Gentiles. And Paul is warning against that. And I think he's warning against it because these Gentiles might look around and see, there's no, there's no, they've turned completely away from the Jews to us. We must be special. And from that perspective and during that time, he's saying, no, that's not the case. And uh, that's, now, I will say this. Why they might have thought that, if I can't explain that to you, Paul still says that's what they thought. <laughs> but I think, if, I think we look at it from a, a, a situation where we can understand it better uh, because we're looking at it from a 2,000-year perspective. Besides that, we're all members of the church and have been taught this all our lives. Other people out in the world haven't been taught what we've been taught. Brother David Griffin. <clears throat> I appreciate it, Alan. Uh, you know, when I was young, I, I wish I'd had your commentary at that time. Me too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I worked uh, in Springfield, Missouri, down the road from Baptist Bible College, and I worked with a couple of seminary students there, and our discussions were premillennial dispensationalism quite a bit, and I was just completely at a loss. I, had, I didn't have any knowledge. I was only in the church a year or two, but... But that would have been very helpful at the time. But uh, what you've talked about today has to do with that topic. But if I may, I'd like to circle back around to the Calvinism. And I know that's not directly related to this chapter per se, but except for a couple of comments you made earlier. And there was something I think it was Colin yesterday that said that, uh, that I wanted to comment or ask about, but, or just to get his feedback on. But it, we ran out of time or something. I don't remember. So. Uh, back at the beginning, you made statements about God's plans with the Jews and Gentiles and whatever. And I recognized some of the language that you used there that, that the Calvinist would find completely repugnant, such as God hoped that 
and I don't remember exactly the quotes, but something to the effect that God hoped that this would take place as a result of his uh, efforts to save the world, and God, quote-unquote, I think, did what he could, and, you know, the Calvinists would reply to that, as you well know, that God doesn't do things like that. God is sovereign, and God is going to save who's he's, who he's going to save, and he's not going to save who he's not going to save. And so my question really is, is what's a good response to that Calvinist objection that, you know, if you take the position we take, that it sort of puts God in the place of just sitting up in heaven, wringing his hands, hoping that people will be saved and respond to the gospel, as opposed to the Calvinist view that God has decided in advance who's going to be saved, and he actively works on them to save them. I think you got my question. Yeah, that's a good question, and I think an important one. And I think the short answer to your question is what Ron said yesterday at some point, and that is when God limits himself, that does not impinge on his sovereignty. It's the Calvinist who has sovereignty wrong in the end. Now, he insists that God is sovereign. He's not wrong about that. But what he calls God's sovereignty is in the end wrong because God's sovereignty allows him to limit himself, which he has done because he has created man as a free moral agent. And if man is truly free, which the Bible teaches that, I mean, that's a subject all of its own, but <clears throat> the Bible teaches that throughout. If man is truly free to make his choices, then God has limited himself to, to giving the revelation he has given in nature and in the Bible. And yeah, that's all he can do. He can't interfere with man's free moral agency without violating it. He can't have it that man is a free moral agent, but he's going to decide for him. Uh, this will be brief, no question, just a comment. I just want to say regarding that, great answer. I, I, I agree with you. But I, just, I, I meant to say when I was standing here a moment ago that these young fellows here who want to be preachers and want to study the Bible, you need to get this commentary. If Alan's commentary on Romans in the intent, uh, Contending for the Faith series, uh, you need to get that commentary and digest it. It will help you immensely in the area of Calvinism and, as we've seen here this afternoon, it will help you immensely in some of the teachings of dispensationalism, premillennialism. So I, I can't recommend it highly enough. Thank you, David. That's kind. Noah Howard. I'll echo the words of Brother David. I think you did great answering some of those premillennial uh, issues on this passage. Um, and I was trying to think of other modern day applications to this, you know, because we haven't seen anyone who has practiced Judaism and come to Christianity that hasn't been a system for several thousand years. And I really got to thinking about verse 18. And I just wanted to make a comment about uh, do not boast that you are better than the, the branches. You do not sustain the root, but the root sustains you. And I was just thinking, you know, it's easy to make comments sometimes looking back about elements of the, the Jewish system or how people behaved under that system and, and to talk derisively about it. But we have to remember that we 
are the result of that system. Like you said, we stand here today because of those thousands of years of Jewish history. And uh, I think we would do well to remember that and to maybe be motivated by that to be better students of the Old Testament. Yeah, I think that's exactly spot on. And I think that, yes, there are people in the Old Testament, the Jews, among the Jews, who committed terrible sins. And that needs to be discussed and pointed out. But particularly when we're talking about Jews who are part of the faithful remnant, like that Hebrews 11 talks about. Those people committed sins too. But you need to be careful how hard you ride David. I mean, uh, he committed some serious sins and that's not okay. But he was the man after God's own heart and he is, uh, Psalms 51 is about David's repentance and so forth. You know, I think there's several things like that. We do need to remember that we have come from these people, and it's because of God's plan that we have. Another thing about studying the Old Testament is when you read your Bible through, even one time, let alone year after year as you should, you find out that God is an absolutely incredible lover of his people so many times so many times they failed him so many times they were they deserved to be destroyed in fact romans 9:22 says that he he did want to destroy them he was long suffering that means he had long anger with them and and managed in spite of their free choices in spite of their rejections to bring about the Messiah into the world at the perfect time. And we not only need to remember that we have come from these people, we need to remember the God who brought all this into effect, the God the Old Testament reveals to us. And we need to learn from their failure and we need to abide uh, faithful and certainly not become self-righteous like many of them did. Uh, that's what Paul is arguing against here. We are not saved because of any merit of our own. In fact, the book of Romans clearly teaches no sinner. How many people in this room have never sinned? There may be some babies in this room who've never sinned, but I dare say the rest of us have. No sinner can merit salvation. It is by God. If you're saved, it is by God's grace. And you have no merit of your own. And we need to remember that. And we need to learn from the examples of the Old Testament and from passages like this uh, to be the kind of faithful people that we ought to be. Sorry, I didn't mean to go on and on. Brother James Nelson. Thank you, Brother Allen. I really enjoyed that study. Uh, this question is to help me in my uh, effort in spreading the gospel. Uh, I was in uh, the company of 
people of different races, and they asked me to pray. And at the end of my prayer, I ended in the name of uh, Jesus Christ. And a person walked up to me afterwards and said, well, you shouldn't have ended in Jesus Christ, but you have some Jewish people in here that don't believe in Jesus. I said, well, they don't ask me to pray. That's how I end my prayer. <laughs> but uh, the fact is, I want to ask you, have you ever studied with uh, some Jews? Uh, and if you have, how do you get them beyond the Old Testament? I find that everyone that I have met of the Jewish race, they only go as far as the Old Testament and not the New Testament. As far as I know, I've never studied with a Jew, no. And uh, all I could say in answer to your question is the only way to get people beyond the Old Testament, if you're studying with a Jew, or, well, we'll just say that, uh, is to use the New Testament scriptures. That's all I know. Okay. And uh, if that won't convert them, then there's not any magic words you're going to say that will convert them. We always have to remember when we're studying with people, they're free moral agents and they may make the wrong choices. We need to be as persuasive as we can uh, with the scriptures, but they may still make the wrong choice. Go ahead. Thank you. I was just going to say if any other brother have studied with any Jews, I would like to just talk with them after they study. Thank you. Go Richard ahead and hand the microphone to Marcus while you're right there, please. Thank you. Definitely appreciate your lesson. Uh, very insightful, and you know we've been going through Romans with you, so I've heard a little bit of it. Um, I understand and completely agree with the concept that we do not earn salvation because of merit, and I also understand that obedience is 100% necessary. Um, and I guess my question would be, how should I view obedience? Uh, when I'm performing obedient acts to God, when I read his commands and I'm following them, and then also how should I view disobedience? Um, you know, I ask because I sit amongst people of different religions and I explain obedience, and it's obvious that the, their aspect and their view of obedience is different from mine, uh, from what I've been able to gather from conversations that I've had with them, is that they uh, view obedience as something that kind of just proceeds after you've been saved, as something that naturally comes about. Well, I view it more as of a choice that I make daily. Um, so, if my question makes sense, of course, you know. Well, I think there's a couple of things that you need to to be able to tell people, not just you, but anybody here who studying with people from. Folks have to recognize that there's two kinds of righteousness in the Bible. There's absolute righteousness. Not very many individuals have it. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the good angels, babies and toddlers, and people that are mentally incompetent through no fault of their own. They're the only ones with absolute righteousness, which means sinlessness. And then there's declared righteousness. Declared righteousness is righteousness that is given by God's fiat, by his decree, to certain people upon their satisfaction of certain conditions. It is a free gift, but it's God's gift to give, and he can attach a thousand 
conditions to it if he wants to. He has attached conditions to it, but it's, for, it's declared righteousness. Secondly, they need to understand corollary to that, that there's two kinds of works in the Bible. There are works of merit, whereby you earn something and the, and the person you earn it from is in debt to you. He owes it to you. So in Romans 4, for example, Paul said, what about Abraham? You guys want to talk about Abraham? So what about Abraham? If his salvation is of works, he has whereof to boast, but not before God, which doesn't mean he could boast anywhere except in front of God. It means he cannot boast before God because he didn't get his salvation by merit. He said in verse 4 that if, if Abraham could say, you said, if I will do this, 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 and this, I would merit salvation. I have done those things. You owe it to me. It's a debt. Pay it right here. But he can't do that because he sinned. And the most interesting thing about all that to me, I was talking to Doug about this yesterday. Doug wrote the commentary on James. I don't know where he is, but anyway, wherever he is. It's a great commentary on James. And both James and Paul use the same passage of Scripture, Genesis 15, 6. Paul uses it to show that if you've ever sinned one time, you cannot merit salvation. It's a gift from God. And James uses it to show that if you have faith in Jesus but don't have the works faith produces, you cannot be saved. They both use the same passage, Genesis 15 and 6. Paul is talking to people trying to be justified by works without faith in Jesus. James is talking to people who are trying to be justified by faith in Jesus without the works faith produces. But you've got to get people that you're studying with, Marcus, like we've talked before, to recognize that these works are produced by faith. In fact, Jesus himself says that faith is a work. And uh, John 6, 29 and... Of course, I know there's more to it than that, but, and you always have to reckon, there are no magic words. You just have to present the scriptures as best you can and keep on doing that uh, in hopes that people will accept the truth. They have to make their own decision. Final thoughts. Sorry? Final thoughts. Oh, I don't have any final thoughts. Um, the Lord willing, uh, well, Alan and I are directing the study next year, so I don't know. It may be year after next. I hope to be able to finish uh, this study on Romans 9 through 11. I appreciate uh, the kind words were said, and uh, I do study with a number of young men on the book of Romans, and if there are others who want to do that, uh, well, we can develop a waiting list and do that. Thank you very much.